Well, Heavenly Father, we come today as your people brought near to the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning that we who were once far away have been brought to the Savior. We thank you, Father, for the new birth. We celebrate the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning that we have the the high privilege of gathering with your people to sing praises to your name, the only God the one true God, the creator of the universe, and now our Father. We take a few minutes this morning to remember what you have done for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we sing sing praises to your name. Father, we continue to come prostrate before you as a needy people today. We need to hear the message of truth. There are those undoubtedly in this room this morning who have had difficult weeks Maybe there are those who have wandered far away. We pray that through the preaching of truth, they would be drawn near to you today. Father, encourage us with truth. Remind us that we who are uh, a needy people remain the people of God. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ celebrates the great presence of the Father in our midst. And we pray that we may be faithful to that call this week as light and salt in our community. Father, we come now to give our offerings to you. We thank you, Father, for the faithful giving of your people. We pray now that you will receive all of these offerings. And, Lord, may the money be used wisely to expand the kingdom of heaven. We commit ourselves to that as your people, realizing that all that we have comes from you. You are the giver of all. Father, we thank you for the way you have blessed us. And we give back with joyful hearts this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have your Bibles turned to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, we're going to read the entire psalm this morning. I'll remind you just a couple of things as we prepare to read this passage. Psalm 46 is found in the second book of the Psalms, if you've ever look through the entire book of Psalms, you've noticed that the books are divided into, the Psalms are divided into five different books. Jewish tradition tells us that it was Moses who gave, the, gave us the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's King David, though, that gives us the five books of the Psalms. And the Psalms were written uh, as to be sung. This was the Hebrew hymn book. And Psalm 46 is a psalm of praise. We'll talk more about the context in just a moment. Let me read the psalm and then we'll pray. Father, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. 
The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we ask one more time this morning that you bless the reading and the preaching of your word. There are so many good thoughts, such good news here. and I pray that you will help us put these thoughts together in an understandable way for the edification of your people and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, I always like to take just a few minutes and look at the context of a particular passage because context is always important. It helps us shed light on the events that surrounded the writing of a particular passage. And when we understand context, we can also make better application. Many scholars believe that Psalm 46 was written parallel to the events that took place in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. And we don't have time to read those two chapters in 2 Kings. Let me just tell you just a few things about what was happening in the life of Judah during this particular period. Second Kings was written, the dreaded Assyrian army. You remember those people? They had come marching from the north, swept across the lands like Syria. And then they went into Israel and captured those people and took Judah's brothers and sisters into captivity. And then they swept down from the north and captured the outpost of Judah, the southern part of the kingdom. And now they stand before the great city of God, Jerusalem. Where the temple was, and there now this mighty army of the Assyrians threatened the very city of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And King Hezekiah is on the throne. He recognizes that all will be lost unless God intervenes. I can just imagine as Hezekiah goes to the city wall, and he looks over out in the fields that lay before him, and he sees this mighty pagan army. As they close ranks to fight against this great city. And Hezekiah petitions God, what should I do? And through the voice of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah promises Hezekiah that God will not fail him now. That the city of Jerusalem will be preserved. Now at first, Hezekiah, he, he pays this enormous tribute to King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. He pays the king off to leave Jerusalem alone. And yet, Sennacherib changes his mind and says, there's no way that I can leave this fortified city in my wake as I go on to defeat other countries. I must take Jerusalem. And so, Sennacherib sends this, this uh, official, one of his top officials, to meet with Hezekiah's officials. And he tells them, you need to lay down your arms. My goodness, look at this army. There's no way that you can defeat this army. Has any nation defeated the Assyrians as of yet? And so they give them promises, if you lay down your arms and, and um, allow us to enter the city of Jerusalem, all will be well, we'll feed and take care of your people, and, and uh, you can trust us. So Hezekiah, knowing the promises of Isaiah and the promises of God, turns the officials away, and they go back to their camps. And now it's just hours before the impending attack. And on that given night, the scriptures tell us in 2 Kings 19 that the angel of the Lord sweeps over the Assyrian army. And 185,000 of those warriors are killed in one night. And the city is set free. It's liberated. And the next morning, the people celebrate this great victory, knowing that God has once again intervened on their behalf. And then Psalm 46 is written, this hymn of praise celebrating God's deliverance. Now guys, as I look at this psalm, one of the things that I've noticed 
as I read through this text over and over again, is you get this sense of two different perspectives. As you look in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 46, you get this perspective of what, it would, what life would be outside the city. And again, in my mind's eye, I picture Hezekiah coming to the, going up to the top of the city walls, the ramparts of Jerusalem, and looking out over the fields and looking at this great army as it gathers there on the battlefield, ready to strike the city. Hezekiah is looking at this mighty army. And he's, realized, he's remembering the great promises of the Old Testament, how God had faithfully, time and time again, delivered the nation of Israel. And he sees these, this great army gathering. And he writes these words, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. And Hezekiah looks at the land before him. Could almost feel the ground shake as the enemy approaches. And he thinks of the mountains and how often in the scriptures the mountains represent the nations of God and the seas would often represent the pagan nations and how the seas and, and on occasions would swallow up the weaker mountains and pull them into the seas and they would be overwhelmed. And Hezekiah is wondering. Will that be the outcome of this nation tomorrow or the next day? Guys, the Assyrian army represents all that is in direct opposition to the God of Israel. And Hezekiah's questions are, is there any truth to be found in the promises of a pagan king? Where is righteousness and justice? And Hezekiah knows that these values will never be part of life among the government of the Assyrians. And neither was Hezekiah ignorant of history. Hezekiah remembers how Moses told these great stories of God's deliverance. And the lessons for Israel as a nation was that, it, that God would make bitter anything that's prized before him. And God, or, or Hezekiah remembers that even their brothers to the north, as, as recently as just Weeks before Israel had, years before Israel had fallen to the Assyrian armies. And the scriptures tell us that they fell to the Assyrians because they failed to obey the covenant. And so Hezekiah looks out over the city and he sees this, this mounting danger facing Jerusalem. And he gets a picture of what life outside the city of God is like uncertainty, turmoil, disruption. Pain and sorrow and death and destruction. And then we come to a different perspective. In verses 4 through 7, we get a perspective of what life inside the city must have been like. I can see Hezekiah as he turns away from a look outside the city. And he looks back into the city walls and he sees the temple there in the foreground. He sees the people of God there, Judah, God's people. And he thinks of community. He thinks of peace and prosperity and the promises of God and righteous living and justice, the justice of God. And then he writes these words. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms may fall. But he lifts his voice and the earth before him melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, guys, this is poetry. But don't 
don't mistake this. The places that Hezekiah is speaking of are real places. There is a river, he says. Guys, this is the river or the spring of Siloam that fed and refreshed the city of Jerusalem. This is not a, this is not a dry riverbed like you might find out in West Texas that can, can turn into a torrent of death after a summer thunderstorm. Not this river. This river is constant. It's flowing. It's dependable. It's refreshing. This river brings life, not destruction. Hezekiah realized the importance of the spring of Siloam. And in in an engineering feat of his day, he rechannels the spring of Siloam and covers a large portion of it to hide it from approaching enemies. And this water goes under the city, into the city of Jerusalem, and it becomes a constant source of life and refreshment to the city. Hezekiah knew that any enemy that could lay hold of the city of Jerusalem, the city could survive indefinitely as long as they had a fresh source of water. So the the river that he speaks of here in these verses is a real thing. It's a real place. And then there is the city. It's Jerusalem, of course. It's the city of God. The place that's become known as Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Psalm 47 and 48 are sequels to Psalm 46. It speaks of this city of God, the city of the great king. When I was a young boy growing up in Sunday school, someone put music to Psalm 48. And I I still remember this tune now in my older age. I can remember as a young boy singing this hymn of praise, Psalm 48. It went like this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of our great king. And yet the text says it goes on to say that there is one who abides in the city Who is this mysterious resident in the city of the great king? The text says, it is the Lord of hosts. It's the Hebrew word, Emmanuel, which gives us this messianic title. Emmanuel, God with us. John Calvin saw these verses representing this. Calvin saw the city of God as representing the church today. And he saw the river as representing divine grace, this source that constantly feeds and refreshes the people of God. Calvin saw the temple, of course, as the individual Christian, the dwelling place of God. Now, you see this, guys, when when we put all this together, we see this magnificent truth that the peculiar glory of Jerusalem and now the glory, the high honor of the church today is that God dwells in our midst. Verse 5 says, for God is within her and she will not fall. There's a famous conductor by the name of Stravinsky who once wrote this famous musical piece. And in this piece, he wrote this very difficult violin passage. When he put this piece together, he assigned it to his orchestra. And he assigned this violin passage to one of his very best violinists. And weeks went by as they rehearsed this great number. And two or three weeks later, his very best violinist came to him and said, Sir, this solo is just too difficult. I've given it my very best, but I think it's, it's unplayable. 
It cannot be played. And Stravinsky replied, I understand that. He said, but what I'm after is the sound of someone trying to play it. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps that's something similar to what God is or has in mind when he thinks of his church, the people. We're not a perfect people. We stumble in the Christian life. We get discouraged in our ministry. We get tired. We get distracted. But nonetheless, God has chosen to abide in our midst. And we as the people of God represent Christ to the world, as imperfect as we are. C.S. Lewis wrote that God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. Guys, again, there's no greater illustration of that principle than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think of my own self. I'm telling you guys, there is a great responsibility upon the preachers to stand behind a pulpit and deliver truth to the people of God. You don't know what a responsibility this is. And it goes through my mind when the opportunities I have to stand before you people to teach or to preach. And I ask the question, who am I to stand and open the word of God? I stumble during the week. I get discouraged. I let my family down. I second guess ministry and wonder and ask the questions of what if. But it is God who has chosen to, to, to abide in me. And I have been given the privilege to represent the presence of Christ in the world, to stand before you and preach the gospel. And so you have been given the opportunity to represent Christ in the world, as imperfect as we are. There is a, a Hebrew writing device called, it's called an inclusion. It's where a, perf, a portion of scripture is bracketed by a similar truth. The Beatitudes is an example of this. The Beatitudes begin in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 11, as the Beatitudes close, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what you have here is a similar statement. And it alerts you to the reality that all that comes between is of great importance and relates to that truth. Well, there's something similar used here in Psalm 46. In verse 1, the psalmist says that God is our refuge. He's an ever-present help in trouble. And then the psalmist closes out this hymn of praise this way. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Guys, this truth that holds this hymn of praise together is that God is our refuge. He is... Our refuge. This psalm over the years has become known as Luther's psalm. Because it's from Psalm 46 that Luther was inspired to write that great hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. Bulwark never failing. And we know Luther's story. This is the guy, of course, that with his 95 thesis, he ignites the flames of the Reformation. And Luther then stands before the the, the great medieval Roman church and he takes his stand on the righteousness of Christ through faith. And Luther realizes that there's more at stake than than, uh, job security. There's more at stake than tenure or 401k. I think Luther understood that his life was at stake and he may very well go to the stake and be burned at the stake for his position 
on justification by faith alone. But I think it went further than that, guys. I think we're seeing a man who is celebrating liberty of the soul. And Luther recognized that God's protection, that his shelter included more than a refuge against earthly enemies and institutions. For God offers refuge for the spiritually bankrupt. He is our refuge. He is a refuge for the poor and the needy. And Luther understood that the safest place to be, the impending wrath of God, is to run to God. See, Luther discovered something in studying the Psalms. He discovered that the righteousness of God is revealed. And he discovered in Romans chapter 1 that this righteousness of God that is revealed is revealed through Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. But if there is a righteousness of God, there must be a corresponding wrath of God. And Luther understood the safest place to be when the wrath of God comes is to go to God. Try to think of ways to illustrate this reality that God is our refuge. Two things came to mind. One was when Holly and Brian were little and I'd have to spank my children. You ever have to have spank your kids? <laughs> I remember uh, they were two different kids. I mean, all together when it came to spankings. You go to Brian's room and get ready to spank him. And, you know, he's a typical boy. Okay, give it to me. Let's get it over with. And I'll go on about my life, you know. And he'd forget about it. The next day, he never even remembered the spanking. But Holly was different. You go to Holly's room, and I had this little paddle that I'd made years ago when they were little, and I'd use the paddle on it. I tried never to use my hand to spank my kids. I wanted my hands to represent, you know, the love of a father and an embrace. So I, I had a paddle that I used, and you could go to Holly's room, and, and she was panic-stricken. I mean, from the word go, you'd walk in a room, and, and I didn't know she was going to be in the service this morning, so I may have to change up the story just a little bit. <laughs> But anyways, I'd go to her room and get ready to spank her. And she, in a panic-stricken state, oh, Dad, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've I, I got to tell you one more thing. And so I'd say, okay, what is it? And she would say, uh, she couldn't think of anything to say. She was just trying to delay the paddling. And, and so I'd get, okay, let's, I've got, how many licks am I going to get? Are you going to get three licks today? Oh, Dad, i got to tell you one more thing. And so on and on we go. And what she was doing was, you know, Holly wouldn't run from you. She would, she knew the closer she could get, the less painful it would be. And I remember when I was a little boy, you know, you, if you grabbed hold of Mama's leg, she couldn't swing near as hard, you know? And that was her strategy. She got close to Dad. Another thing I thought about, uh, another illustration was when I was in, Training as a firefighter, remember we used to, we were always told that, that uh, in the event of a collapsing wall, the tendency is to run away, to run out. But really the smartest thing to do is to, to get in a fetal position and fall at the base of the wall. That was the safest place to be. And so it is in the spiritual sense, ladies and gentlemen. The safest place to be when the wrath of God comes is to run to God. And He is our refuge, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I know that most of us in here in this room this morning are believers. We've committed our lives to Jesus Christ. And for most of us, our souls are in safekeeping. We know what it means spiritually that God is our refuge. But there's that, there's that other part of life, I think, for the Christian, where we now, those of us under grace, we seek refuge in other things. We tend to be distracted from our primary source of refuge. We're drawn away from the promises of God and we seek refuge in other places. 
See, guys, what I'm saying to you this morning is that this experience of grace does not cease at regeneration. It's an ongoing thing. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. It's like it's a perpetual invasion of our lives. And we need grace today. And we'll need grace tomorrow and grace the next day. But know this. The enjoyment of that grace tomorrow, I think, hangs on where we take, whether we take refuge in God. I was uh, on the golf course a few weeks, or maybe it's a few weeks ago now, and with a friend, and a sudden, one of those sudden summer downpours came up. I mean, just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I mean, the, just the bottom fell out. We were on the green trying to putt out, and, and when this rain came, there was like no doubt. There was no, we had to run. We just ran off the green. We jumped in our golf cart. We had to go somewhere, and, and close by was this small clump of trees, and they were, they were old trees. I'm be 50, 60 years old. So they looked like they were, would offer pretty good protection. So we jumped in the golf cart and we ran into those trees and we parked there. And just for a few minutes, we were okay. And then I realized what, you know, golfers always said, that trees are 90% air and 10% wood. I don't know why, but my, my golf ball always finds that 10% wood, you know, and it gets knocked, you know, out of play. But I was sitting under that tree and I was thinking of that, they're 90% air, you know, that's what they say. And and it was true. I mean, in just a matter of minutes, we were getting soaked. I realized that day that trees are a poor source of refuge in a downpour, in a thunderstorm. Well, guys, we as Christians often run to trees, if you will, and seek refuge. And we discover that they're poor sources of refuge. We have lots of refuges that we run to. One of those refuges is... Is good works. You know, we we are we're experts at creating lists of things that we we need to do, we ought to do. And the problem is that these good works or these lists of things can become a refuge for us rather than the finished work of Christ. You know, I mean, some of you have lists. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, you're here today because it's on your list, and because you're here, you assume that. You gain more favor from God or something. Or you teach an amazing Graceland. Or you serve an SOS this week. Or you teach on Wednesday nights in our children's program because it's on your list. And the danger again is that these lists become a false refuge for us. Ladies and gentlemen, when all along we have adequate grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I hope you do good works. We need to do good works. But our good works should result from the excitement and thrill and the realization to know that we are safe in God's arm. And the Father loves He can't love us any more than He does right now. We have other refuges that we run to. Some of us run to our children. We seek refuge in, in children. We have you know, a child-centered home and one day those children let us down. Now, there is a biblical principle, I've already mentioned it this morning, that God will make bitter anything that's prized before Him. And sometimes even those things that we, we hold close to us become bitter. Some of us have sought refuge in a spouse, and our spouses will let us down. Or we seek refuge in a career. There is another refuge that's becoming very popular in our land. It's the therapeutic. Guys, there is this, there's this growing phenomenon in America, 
It's taking place, I think, as a result of the baby boomers coming of age. The baby boomers have now made their wealth, for the most part. And they have accumulated more things than they could ever have ever dreamt of accumulating. And they've come to the realization that these material things just do not satisfy. And so as a result, they turn to the therapeutic now. That is, leisure becomes a refuge for the emotional instability and the unpredictability of life. And we turn to television, the theater. These things are not bad in and of themselves. But they become bad when they become our primary source of refuge for the soul. And the psalmist is reminding us here that God is the only adequate refuge for our soul. He closes the song with this imperative, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. But guys, this, the application here is, is pretty simple. We cannot know God if we are rushing around from one event to the next. The psalmist says, be still and know Know that I am God. Then he uses these two titles for God. Did you pick them up when we read the psalm? He says that the Lord Almighty, verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. This Lord Almighty is the the, uh, name for God, Elohim. It's the, the title for divine power. This God, the same God who sent one angel down in one night. And defeated the most powerful army known to man at that time. One angel in one night. The scriptures teach us that the host, there's a heavenly host, gathered at the throne of God, waiting to do his bidding. And God sends one angel in one night. It's that God. That God is our God. And he is with us. And then he uses this next title, verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the covenant title of God. When the Hebrew heard the God of Jacob, they thought of their birthright. This is the covenant-keeping God. And it's through this God that the promised Messiah would come. I mentioned the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know, verse 2, Luther writes, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing we're, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus, ask who that may be. It's Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Guys, the Apostle Paul, he gives us the, the technicolor version of this promise in first, or in Second Corinthians chapter 1. Here it is. Listen to this. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 20, Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. (laughs) No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes to us in Jesus Christ. As someone has said, Christ then is our yes. I'll close with this story that I read some time ago. It's a story told by a French woman who had the privilege of growing up in the um, Donald Gray Barnhouse household. Donald Gray Barnhouse was, uh, many of you may not know this, but was a missionary in the early part of his ministry in France. 
And it was during those early years of his ministry that he led this young French girl to Christ. And then she got to know his family and spent lots of time with the Barnhouse household. She said there was one thing that she learned from this experience that she would never forget. And she said it was what the Barnhouse was called the promise box. See, Dr. Barnhouse had taken down, he had written down 200 promises of God that he had found in Scripture. And he wrote these individual promises on small pieces of paper. And then he rolled them up and he placed them in a box, 200 of them. And the, the ladies telling the story that when they would get discouraged and have some particular need, at night Dr. Barnhouse would gather his children around at his feet and he would take down the promise box and he would open the lid and he would let one of, the, one of his children pull out a promise. And they would read that promise. And that would be the promise of God for that given situation. This so impressed that young French girl that she said when she started her own family, she wanted to have a promise box of herself for herself. And so she took those 200 promises that Dr. Barnhouse had written out. She translated them into French. And she made her own promise box. As years passed by, she married. She had her own family. And then the war came. World War II. And the Nazis invaded from the north and... Just in a matter of weeks, France fell to the Nazis. Her own husband was called off and she didn't see him for years. And she said during the later years of the occupation, the times grew very, very difficult. There was very little food to feed her children. She had no income. And she said it was, it was, the years were very tough. And she had on one particular evening, her children were crying. They were emaciated. They were hungry. And she said the only thing they had to eat in their house, her, the house that night was a, a sack of potato peelings that she had picked up from another re, a local restaurant that had thrown them out. She said that evening, she came to the end of herself in desperation. She began to cry, God, what can I do? Is there any hope? My children are hungry. And she remembered the promise box. So she said she gathered her children around at her feet and through her tears she was crying, Lord, is there any promise for us tonight? And she was reaching up to get the box off the shelf. Through her tears, the box fell open. And she said all 200 promises fell out of the box. And some of them fell on her lap. And some of them fell at the feet of her children. And she remembered at that moment, it's true, that every promise of God, every promise of God is yes in Jesus Christ. In fact, all the promises of God are ours through Jesus Christ. Can I leave you with this one promise? Here's a promise to go home with. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And it is God who dwells in our midst. It is grace that has become the life-giving source of the people of God. For God is our refuge. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the timely reminder that you are our refuge. We've discovered that refuge when we came to Christ in repentance and faith. We have enjoyed grace, abundant grace. And yet, Father, we are people who need grace today. We need grace tomorrow. I pray, Father, that as we live the Christian life, you will seek that limitless grace that comes freely through your Son, Jesus Christ. Enrich our lives again today with grace. 
And then, Father, may we leave here today with that important realization that you dwell in our midst. That, in fact, the peculiar glory of Grace Evangelical Church is that you are here among us and that we represent God to the world. And may we be a fountain of grace to our community around us. To those who know us best, may they see grace emulate from our lives for your glory. And Father, finally, there may be those today who are outside the household of faith in this room this morning. I pray that today they may come to faith, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. May they discover an adequate refuge in God through Christ today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.